Thank you. You may have a seat. Thanks, Andrew and band. Great job this morning. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. You know, I, uh, my name is Steve Wallen. I'm one of the elders here at Genesis. Welcome. Glad you're here. Good morning. Um, I, uh, you know, I watch Paul do this every week, and, and I, usually I used to like, staple my notes together and have everything right here together. And, and Paul's up here, and he's just like, you know, he's looking at you and putting his notes like this. And so I, I tried that this morning. I thought I'd do that. And then I got realized while we were singing that my notes were all out of order. And so now I'm thinking, um, if the message doesn't make sense today, it's just my notes. So you can uh, all blame it on that, okay? Uh, I was real excited when Paul asked me to talk about this topic, talk, talking about the topic of success. You know, where is God uh, when we're having success? Because in the church, we talk an awful lot about, you know, where is God when things are bad, right? When the, on the road marked with suffering, when there's pain in the offering, we talk about where is God when that happens? But we don't often give an awful lot of thought to success. And how are we supposed to behave when we have success? And, and how do we keep our integrity when we have success? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to go back to the book of Daniel, which I'm real excited about. But I thought that we might start with a story this morning. Is that all right with you guys? Can we start with a story? All right, good. Kenny was born to a poor family in the farming town of Tyrone, Missouri, Even as a youngster, though, this son of a Baptist preacher dreamt of making it big. So while his friends were out, uh, you know, shooting marbles or playing sandlot baseball, Kenny was delivering newspapers and mowing lawns to make a living, to make money, anyway. Um, He worked hard at his studies, though, and so he made his way into the University of Missouri, where he earned his degree, and then he went on to the University of Houston and earned a PhD in economics from the University of Houston. And uh, upon graduation, he finally landed the big one, Kenny... Ken got a job with the ExxonMobil company, oil giant. He, had made it, he was starting to make it big. He was successful enough there that he went on to get a job as an energy regulator with the federal government. And he was so successful there that he earned a cabinet-level position as the undersecretary of the interior. After that term was over, he went back to the private world as an executive with Florida Natural Gas. In the 1980s, though, things really started to click for Ken His company was bought by a much larger natural gas company, and they decided to put Ken in charge of the whole shebang. He had finally made it. His management skill and style were revered, and Ken was offered directorships at other companies all across the country, including Eli Lilly and Company right here in Indianapolis. But energy was still Ken's first love, and so he set about to make his company a cash flow machine, and he did it. By the late 1990s, Enron had become the seventh largest company in the United States, and it was on Forbes' list of the most innovative company in America for six years in a row. And Ken Lay, at the helm of this once humble energy company, was bringing home some coin, let me tell you. In four consecutive years, over those four years, Ken brought home $217 million worth of stock options to, to, to kind of, you know, just to a benefit or as a benefit to his paltry $19 million salary, okay? By 1999, our Kenny, who, was play, who, was, who began life as a poor farm boy, was playing golf with President Clinton and flying former presidents on his company's private plane to Washington, D.C. and back. Success had happened to Ken Lay. But somewhere in there, and we're not exactly sure where, there was a moment of truth. You see, as Enron was rapidly expanding in the late 1990s, the natural gas business didn't produce enough growth to keep up with Wall Street's inflated expectations for the business. <coughs> Excuse me. So Enron invested in other companies, businesses like 
uh, water pipelines and internet bandwidth and other things that just didn't work very well. Now, Ken Lay and his men had a choice. They could admit their mistakes, take a hit in their personal wealth, maybe take a few steps backward, but retain their integrity. That would be cool. I mean, not cool in the world sense of the word, but that would be really cool, right? They would, uh, it wouldn't be fun, but they could be, choose to be an influencer of the world instead of being influenced by the world. It would be different from what we're used to. And especially in the uber-image conscious world of the investment community that is Wall Street. Or they could fudge the numbers, play some accounting tricks, you know, do what everyone else would do, and probably no one would ever find out. Well, I think you know how the story ends. Everyone did find out, and people punished the company badly. This once proud energy company's stock slid from $90 per share all the way down to 26 cents. Many people, many people lost fortunes. And over 20,000 people lost their jobs and their retirement savings. And Enron became the biggest bankruptcy the world had ever known at the time. And still one of the biggest to this day. And its name, instead of being synonymous with innovative company, Houston Astros Stadium, whatever it was synonymous with, became synonymous with corporate fraud and, uh, and a lack of integrity in business and greed. And all because of a choice, a choice to follow the world's definition of success and lose one's integrity instead of being an influencer of the world and keeping your integrity. So here are the questions we're going to look at today. One, is it possible to maintain your integrity when success happens? Or if you've lost it, can you get it back? Finally, is it possible for someone to have success and be an influencer of the world instead of being influenced by the world? To answer those questions, we're going to go where we always go. We're going to go to the text, and we're going to start in Daniel chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to read through the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, as Paul said, and learn about his success, failure, and return to success. Um, Daniel is in the last third of the Old Testament. It's a couple books after Psalms and Proverbs, if you're looking for it, or we'll have the whole story up here on the screen. Now, I've read this story several times this week. I think there are about four lessons we can learn about success from this story. Maybe more. Maybe you'll come up with more, and I'd love to hear your observations. But we'll go through the text, and then we'll read. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you some of my observations as we go, okay? Ready? We're going to start with Daniel 4, chapter, or verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Hang on just a second. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar, right, that we talked about last week. How many of you were here last week? You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember, Steve Davis stood up here and said King Nebuchadnezzar has an anger management problem, right? This is the same guy. This is the same king that is not a very nice man. Remember, he, he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, and then he ordered it up seven times hotter so that he could be sure they would be killed? King Nebuchadnezzar. And here he is proclaiming the power of the Most High God. He, he's writing a worship song. That's what this is. I mean, this guy has gone from Saddam Hussein to Stephen Curtis Chapman like that, right? And we don't know why. We don't understand it. Well, that's because this chapter is written by King Nebuchadnezzar as a flashback, Okay. And so he tells us that he's, you know, following God now, and now he's going to tell us why. So let's go to Daniel 4.4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Okay, stop right there. See, this makes me mad. I don't know about you, but this makes me mad. King Nebuchadnezzar, the evil one, 
sitting in his palace, contented and prosperous, not bothered by the outside world, not enough compassion to be concerned about the abuses happening in his kingdom. He just sits in his palace, rich and happy, after all the destruction he's caused. And I think this is the first lesson about success, and it may go against everything you think you know about God, and it's this. God sometimes grants success to people who don't follow him. I mean, this story in particular is about Nebuchadnezzar, and we know he wasn't a nice man. But the other thing we know is that he was a rich man. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was probably the wealthiest and most powerful man on earth at this time when he was living. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He built this for his wife. Now, guys, you know how much trouble you're in if you have to bring home a dozen roses to your wife, right? So imagine, here's this king who built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world for his wife. Hey, honey, I made this for you. I don't know what he did, but he did it. He was wealthy. He did that. So he's wealthy. He's powerful. He's not very nice. And the book of Daniel tells a little bit about him, but to really know the king's whole story, you have to go back to Second Chronicles. And so we're going to skip back there. If you've got your Bible open, put your finger in there, and we'll go back to Second Chronicles 36, and it'll be on the screen also. Second Chronicles 36, starting with verse 17, says, He, God, brought up against them, Israel, the king of the Babylonians. God brought up against Israel, the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old nor aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to the temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So here's a guy that raided the city of Jerusalem. He killed everyone he could and enslaved those he couldn't. He took all of their stuff and carried it off to Babylon. Their gold, their livestock, everything of value, all the articles from God's temple he took back to Babylon, and he burned the rest of the city, and he is prosperous. This man, this ancient day Hitler, is sitting in his palace, content and prosperous. And look at verse 17 again. It says, God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Not God let this happen. Not God didn't get in the way, but God, wearing his little UPS shorts and you know, shirt, delivered this into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. He gave it to him. See, I, I can't pretend to know why or explain why, but God sometimes gives success to people who don't follow him. He uses people who don't follow him to even tell his story. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this chapter of the Bible. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, consider this. Maybe just because you're having success in some area of your life doesn't mean you're in the center of God's will in that area. This is huge. I mean, I hear this so many times. You know, God is really blessing some area of my life. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I took this new job because even though I'm away from my family a lot more, I sure am making a lot more money. I'm having a lot of success there. So God is really, you know, I'm really in God's will doing that. Or my husband and I are separated, but I've met this new guy and he's a believer and, and our relationship is so good, and I, God's just really blessing that relationship. And I know he wants me to divorce my husband and go be in this relationship over here. Or, yeah, I know I sin around those friends sometimes, but, but they like me when I do that. And, and, and God wants me to be popular, right? Besides, if they like me, maybe then later I can tell them about my relationship with God. 
Well, I can't tell you what God's will is for your life, but I can tell you this, that God's will for your life will never go against what he's given you in his word. And so if, if what you think God's will for your life is, is in any way different from what's in the Bible, who do you think might be wrong? See, God doesn't want you to be away from your family more so you can make more money. God doesn't want you to leave your husband, leave your wife to be with somebody else. And God doesn't want you to sin so you can be popular among a group of friends. Just because you have success in that area doesn't mean that God, you're in the center of God's will on that. You are buying the world's definition of success. And God will sometimes grant that success even to people who don't follow him. Okay, let's go on. Verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. This is still Nebuchadnezzar. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret for me. I watched Oprah and called Dr. Laura and read Dr. Phil, but no one could answer. Where did he go? Finally, finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. Notice the small g, my God, and the spirit of the holy gods in him. Lesson number two is right here in this, that verse, and it's this. When success happens, we often forget about God. I mean, look at this passage. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it scares the living poo out of him. The Bible says he was terrified. And who does he go to? He goes to all these friends that he's put in place around him, his, his, his friends, his suck-up king wannabes that are going to tell him exactly what he wants to hear and not tell him the truth. These magicians, these enchanters, these astrologers, diviners, they were all part of his kingdom, of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But the truth is that Nebuchadnezzar is a lot like you and me in this situation. I mean, it's not like he didn't know God, right? We saw last week, if you were here or if you've read the story, he saw God in action with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember we talked about last week, they walked unharmed through the furnace and the king declared, praise be to their God because he had seen the miracle that God can work in someone's life. So it's not that he didn't know God. It's that life got in the way and he forgot about God. And we do that too, don't we? I mean, most of us are here at church because somewhere in some way, God has worked some miracle in our life. He's changed us in a way that no one or nothing else could. And if we're not here because of that, it's because we've seen God change a friend or a family member and and we wonder if he couldn't do that to us too. So we're here worshiping or we're here seeking and then, and then something happens and, and maybe it's success. Maybe we get so caught up in what we can do that we forget about God. Or maybe it's a hurt. Maybe the test is positive, the job is gone, the prognosis is not good, and we forget the other things that God has done in our lives. We become like John the Baptist who, had the Bible tells us, leapt in his mother's womb when Jesus' pregnant mother walked into the house. The same John that dedicated his life to telling people about the coming of Jesus when he was put in prison, sent word to Jesus that said, are you the one who was to come or should we look for someone else? See, John, who walked personally with Jesus when the moment of truth came, forgot about what God had done in his life. And just like John, we sometimes forget about God. When we need an answer, just like Nebuchadnezzar, God is sometimes the last place we go. I mean, when all else fails, we pray. 
When really, what we should, we, we should be saying is, when all prayer fails, we'll try something else. We forget about God, but if we are to keep our integrity when success happens, if we want to be an influencer of the world, instead of being influenced by the world, we must resolve not to forget about God. Okay, let's go to verse 9. This is a long passage, and I debated whether or not to read the whole thing, but I think it's important that you hear the whole story set up. This is the dream, and then Daniel's recounting of the dream and his interpretation, and then what actually happens, okay? So bear with me, stay with me. Daniel 4, verse 9. I said, Belteshazzar, Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision that is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, now, Daniel, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. See, we get a picture of how evil this king is, that Daniel, who's with him every day, is terrified to tell this king what his dream means, right? So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now see, if you're the king in this point, you're wondering, you're thinking, this cannot be good because he's wanting this to be my enemy's dream, not my dream. So it can't be good news for me. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong, Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down that tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my lord, the king, You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you 
until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now let me stop right there for a second. When we're in trouble and our friends come to us and say, maybe you need to renounce your sins, turn from your wicked ways, what do we say? Okay, I'll do that right away, right? No, we're usually, don't take to that too kindly, right? All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he didn't listen either. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times I will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So here's this guy, the most powerful person in the entire world, the richest man in all of Babylon, and he's exiled out into the wild to live with the animals, to be covered with dew, to have his hair grow like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. And this gives us the third lesson from this chapter, and it's this. All earthly kingdoms will fall. And I'm not just talking about the end times when heaven and earth are, are, are destroyed and, a new, and replaced with a new one. And I'm not just talking about kingdoms like countries with kings or even countries with presidents. I'm talking about the kingdoms that you and I work to build every day. See, the world's definition of success is kind of like a ladder, isn't it? You guys thought somebody left this out here to work on the lights or something, didn't you? <laughs> the world's definition of success is kind of like a ladder. And we sit down here from our perspective and we see somebody up on top of the ladder. And when we see them fall, we kind of take a little pleasure in that, don't we? Just a little bit of perverse pleasure. We see them fall. But the truth be known, we'd all love to be up there too, wouldn't we? And so we work real hard to, you know, get that job or promotion or to to save that next $1,000 or $10,000 or to buy that nice house or nice car or to get our kids into the right school, all the while just looking to climb to the top of the ladder. And we work hard at that. In fact, the world encourages us up the ladder. I mean, how many of you just graduated recently this year? A few of you? Good. Graduates? All right. Way to go. But, but you have an open house or you have your friends over, right? And what's the first thing people ask you when they come over? You graduated. Now what? Ashley Elliott says, Now what? right? So you've had all the success. Way to go. What's your next trick? What are you going to do to take the next step up the ladder, right? The world is encouraging us up the ladder, and especially in the United States. Like in Babylon, we've got a lot of things that encourage us up the ladder. You know, I, I heard this story, and it's one of my favorite stories, and it's about a, a tourist who was in Mexico, and he, he uh, vacationed in this, uh, in this small fishing village in Mexico off the coast, and, and he was sitting out by the docks one afternoon, and he saw a fishing boat, small fishing boat come in and it had a Mexican fisherman on it. And he saw that this Mexican fisherman had two 
beautiful yellowfin tuna that he was holding in the back of his boat. And, and the, the tourist said, those are really nice fish. How long did it take you to catch them? And the fisherman said, I, I don't know, an hour, maybe two. And the man said, well, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more? And the fisherman said, well, this is all my family needs. These two fish will feed my family for the week. And the fisherman says, or the, the tourist says, but what do you do with all your other time? And the fisherman says, oh, I have a great life. He says, I sleep late, I play with my kids, I fish a little, then in the afternoon I take a siesta with my wife, then we stroll into the village and we drink wine, and I play the guitar with my amigos. And <laughs> the tourist kind of looked at him and said, you know, I've got an MBA, and I can really help you with this business. He says, what you need to do is stay out for eight or ten hours, and then you can catch more fish. And then you can go sell those at the market, and you can buy a bigger boat, and that'll help you catch more fish. But then you'll need to hire some guys, and they can all catch fish too. Then you'll have a lot more fish. And then, you know, you might have to move to Mexico City or Los Angeles, but what you should do is buy your own cannery, and you can can your own fish. You can cut out the middleman, sell them directly to the market, and then you'll be making millions and millions of dollars a year. And the fisherman looks at him and says, well, how long will all this take? And the tourist says, I don't know, 15, maybe 20 years. And the fisherman says, well, then what? And the tourist says, well, this is the best part. Then you can sell your boats, your cannery, the entire business, and be a multimillionaire. And the fisherman says, and then what? The tourist says, well, then you'll be able to move to a small fishing village off the coast of Mexico, sleep, a sleep late, play with your kids, fish a little, take a siesta with your wife, walk into town, drink some wine, and play guitar with your amigos. The world encourages us to climb the ladder and have financial success and have career success. But Jesus had a different idea of what makes a man a success. See, when Jesus was at the height of his popularity, he, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people were waving palm branches at him and they were shouting his name. He, he had just been welcomed into Jerusalem by these crowds. He was a superhero. He was a rock star. He was Susan Boyle with good teeth and a beard. Everyone knew who he was. And what did he do? First, he served his disciples by getting down on one knee and washing their feet. And then, when things really got tough on the night he was betrayed, he walked to a garden and he got down on his hands and knees with his face to the ground and he prayed. And he prayed to God. And this was his prayer. He said, My father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus could have chosen to build a kingdom on earth. He could have run and hid and lived to fight another day, and he could have gotten all the way to the top of that ladder. But he didn't look up. He looked down. He served, and he prayed, and he preserved his integrity, and he chose to be an influencer of the world instead of being influenced by it. And maybe today what we need to do is take our eyes off that ladder and turn them to Jesus as our example of what success is. And, and a lot of us are willing to pray that prayer and say, God, take this cup from me when times are hard, aren't we? I mean, when we're, when we're in a hurt, when we're in pain, when we're in a situation that we don't really understand or don't want to be in, we'll say, Lord, take this cup from me. But how many of us will pray that prayer when we're having success and ask God to take our cup, which may be full of success, and still replace it with his? Hebrews 12, 2 says this, Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us turn our eyes from the kingdom we're building and turn our eyes upon Jesus because of our kingdom, just like Babylon, will fall. So that leads us to the rest of the story. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar got a second chance. At the end of this time, the Bible says, he raised his eyes toward heaven and his sanity was restored. And the lesson for us is the same as it was almost 3,000 years ago for this king. We still have a chance to exchange our kingdom for God's kingdom. There's still time to trade that ladder for the ground. We serve a God who is a God of second chances. And thanks to Jesus, each and every one of us can choose to put our trust in him instead of what we're building. And our sanity can be restored too. I mean, for King Nebuchadnezzar, it took him losing everything, including his wits, to make that decision. But if you haven't made that decision yet, what's it going to take for you? See, the ladder is a hard master. The only way to go is up. And it's hard climbing, and the whole world encourages us to climb up it. But maybe today you're tired of trying to build something on your own. And Jesus says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Which would you rather have, a hard climb or an easy burden? In Matthew 13, Jesus told this story, and he talked about the kingdom of heaven. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. See, this man is digging in a field and he stumbles across this treasure and he gets out the box and he pries open the top and it's so flush with gold and jewels that he decides right then and there that he has to have it. And so he buries it again, deeper this time, so no one else will find it. Then he goes home and he can't sleep that night. He realizes that no matter how hard he tries, he can't get that treasure out of his mind. It consumes him. So he has a garage sale. He puts stuff on Craigslist. He sells everything he can owns and to buy that field so he can have that treasure. I mean, the story would be kind of silly if the man got home and said, well, I can't sell my comic books. I mean, I had those since I was a kid. You know, or I know those jeans are 32 waist, but I'm going to get back into them someday. I'm not selling those. Or you know, that has a lot of sentimental value. I can't get rid of my yearbook. And after, over time, he kind of forgets about the treasure. That would be silly. We'd all look at that man and say, that's not a very good story at all. It doesn't make any sense. The treasure is awesome. It's valuable. It's beyond anything that we could produce ourselves or get from any other source. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. And we should be willing to trade everything to get it. And when you do, once you decide to take that step, you need to know that you're not taking the first step. 
See, God had a treasure too. Us, his people, and he lost us. And he spent the rest of his time doing everything he could to get us back. We were so valuable to him. You are so precious to him that from the moment he laid eyes on you, he couldn't stop thinking about you. And so he gave up everything. He sent his son down here to die to purchase that treasure back. He bought you at a high price. I came across this story this week, and I thought it'd be appropriate to share it with you just to close out the service today. You know, it's not like John Avia didn't have enough to worry about. As the Civil War was escalating around him in 1865, he'd already had several friends and family members die in battle. And the fighting was getting close to his home in Albemarle County, Virginia. But to top things off, he'd just been repaid for some of his debts by some of his debtors with $11,000 in Confederate bills. Now, the Confederate money was still good in the South at that time, but he knew it wasn't going to be long and he would have to trade that in. So he, he worked every angle he could to try to trade it, but at the end of the war, John Villa was left with $11,000 in Confederate money that he had to find a home for. You know, John Villa waited until it was too late to exchange his Confederate dollars for the Yankee dollar that would be worth something in the new union. And in the same way, many of us are building a fortune of something that will be worthless in the next life. What we're building here and now on earth, it's all going to end. And at the end of our life, it'll be worthless. But we have a choice now to exchange it for something of value. And the way to do that is in 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Jesus is forever. The only thing that will matter 100 years from now is your relationship with God. What you drive, where you live, what you did for a living, none of that will matter. And that's our choice today. We can keep looking for the top of the ladder, or we can turn our eyes to Jesus and follow his example. We can choose to be influenced by the world, or we can choose to be an influencer of the world. We can choose to keep our integrity, or we can choose to lose it. The important thing for you to know today is that you have a choice. You pray with me? Father, I thank you um, for your word today, and I thank you that you have given us a choice. Uh, I thank you that you loved us so much that you refuse to make us love you back. But you give us each and every one of us a choice to accept that free gift you've given. And God, I just pray for the person in this room who hasn't made that choice yet, who doesn't have that relationship with you and, and doesn't know what that entails. I just pray that you would work in their heart over the next few minutes. And God, I pray for the people here who have been coming to church for a while and, and they know you and they've seen the things that you can do, the power that's in your word and and the things that you can do for them and their friends, and, and they've forgotten because life has happened. I just pray that this morning would be a good reminder for them, Lord. As we come to you in worship now, I just pray that these words wouldn't just be words from our lips, but they'd be words from our heart, and they would be meaningful and a beautiful sound to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.